0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 158 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is The Lyme Educator, an interview with Sarah Titer. My name is Richard Johanneson.
1: And I'm Matt Sabatello.
0: So Matt, this is a really interesting episode where we have a woman who was born, bred, and educated in Connecticut, the birthplace of Lyme disease. And unfortunately, she got sick, very sick, and was not diagnosed with Lyme disease for many different reasons, some of which had to do with her never receiving any
1: education about ticks or Lyme disease despite growing up in Connecticut. And Rich, to make matters worse, when Sarah first got sick, she was tested for lupus, MS, and Lyme. But she was told by her doctors that she wasn't positive enough for Lyme disease. Fast forward four years later, she finds a Lyme-litter doctor and gets diagnosed correctly with Lyme disease. What I love
0: most about this story is how it's come full circle, how this woman who was failed by the educational system in Connecticut is now serving everyone in the Lyme community by working as an educator in the Global Lyme Alliance. So, Matt, without further ado, I'm really excited to introduce the Lime educator, Sarah Tider to the Tick Bootcamp community. So, hey, Sarah, and welcome to the podcast.
2: Great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, we're really blessed to have you, Sarah, and we've uh, been really excited to uh, interview you uh, for many, many different reasons, uh, the most important of which, is, quite frankly, you are one of the folks working at that great and brilliant organization, at GLA. So talk to us very quickly about what you're doing at the GLA.
2: So I am the director of education and outreach at Global Lyme Alliance, and so my primary responsibilities um, is prevention education. So you know we want to make sure that we're you know educating the community at large about uh, what Lyme disease is. Um, also, you know recognizing signs and the symptoms. You know I I think early detection is key to a better outcome if you can. You know, recognize and know what your uh, symptoms are, you know, we want to make sure people are empowered to go to their physician and ask for a Lyme test, because as we all know, oftentimes physicians are not thinking about doing Lyme panels. Um, so that prevention piece is, is very important, but then also patient support services, which we have a uh, peer-to-peer one-on-one support program that we launched over a year ago, which is quite successful, Um, medical education, so educating physicians and the healthcare community is also another key um, part of what I do at Global Lyme Alliance.
0: So uh, we're going to come back and talk more about how you started doing God's work at the GLA, but we want to sort of walk this back a little bit and talk about you and your background. So Sarah, where do you live? I actually, I live in Connecticut. And are you a native Connecticut resident, or did you immigrate to Connecticut from some other place? I am a native Connecticut, born and raised. So talk to us about um, about what it was like to grow up in Connecticut, which uh, we know is the birthplace, at least, of uh, of the Lyme cluster uh, that has named that that this disease is now named after. So talk to us about you know what it was like growing up in in, in Connecticut. How close did you grow up to Lyme, Connecticut?
2: So actually, I grew up in Bridgeport, Connecticut, which is probably about an hour um, south of Lyme, Connecticut. And, um, you know, so I grew up in more of a, of a city type environment, I guess you could say. Um, and, you know, I, you know, Richport is is an interesting city. Um, but, I, you know, I, I, I enjoyed you know, you know, the, my interactions there, I actually, I, I live in, in Shelton, Connecticut now, which is a little bit more, um, suburban. And, um, so, you know, I, I often wonder, and, and I, I just think about, you know, the environments and, and things where I've grown and realizing now, you know, that the, the exposure to ticks has really been, everywhere and you know when you you think you're living in an urban area that that's not an issue and you know knowing what i know now i definitely see where you know the the impact is there also
0: now as somebody who's been educated in connecticut uh both uh both as uh as a um public school student and then ultimately as a college student i'm wondering um as someone who grew up in the grew up and was educated in the birthplace of Lyme disease what your educational experience was like relating specifically to ticks and Lyme disease were you ever given any information at all at any level of education about ticks and Lyme disease
2: absolutely not <laughs> no and that's that's the interesting part of, of all this right i mean you know there ticks Education is not in the school system at least I don't at least in, in my era. Um, it's, that's an important actually part of, of what we're trying to do is, is get you know tick, tick prevention information into the schools because you know the earlier we can educate kids, the better. Uh, but no, it was not at all.
0: So Sarah, you went to one of Connecticut's great colleges. You you were a graduate of Sacred Heart. Are you telling me that even though you went to a fantastic school like Sacred Heart, you received no information at all about ticks, Lyme disease, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, or any other tick disease?
2: No, no, we did not get um, educated there. And, and actually, I went to University of Bridgeport for a semester, and you know they you know have. Um, you know, health school and that sort of thing, but that information was not passed on to students at all.
0: Now, what about in any of these sort of cultural or social activities that you participated in, whether it be church or any other civic groups, was there any tick or Lyme disease information made available to you during your childhood or at any time during your adult life? No, negative. <laughs> So talk to us about your journey through college and what your goals were when you were preparing to go to university. So
2: I um, actually, when I started thinking about college, I thought about, you know, going into journalism. Um, That was, you know, a a goal. I I did not um, land into the journalism field. So I, I took interesting turns as I, you know, left college, and, you know, started actually working in the computer software industry doing marketing. And at some point in time, you know, I I spent quite a few years working in computer software in in a marketing type role. And, you know, I think, you know, when the whole dot com fallout happened, you know, um, marketing, People are the first to go in in those, in that was in that industry, and so I actually ended up working, um, finding my home at another nonprofit in the oncology space, and that's where you know this new phase of my life, working and doing um, patient support type education and this you know educational awareness. Um, journey started, so it was really unexpected. But I, I, it was something that I truly enjoyed doing because you're, it, it's gratifying work. You're you're doing things to help
0: people. So talk to us about how your first education and then your experience in the writing and marketing arena helped you in the patient advocacy arena.
2: So actually, it really came down to the fact that I in my marketing experience, I had a lot of experience working and developing um, educational back then seminars. (laughs) So, you know, bringing people together to receive information and, you know, going to and, and doing trade shows and that sort of thing. And so the organization that I went to first, that was, they had a need for doing that. And so really, it was transitioning skill sets. And I learned uh, about, you know, the, they um, worked in multiple myeloma at that time. And so I learned, really, as I went along about myeloma and cancer and, and the patient experience and, and all of that. And so it was really just the transitional skill, And I built on that.
0: So talk to us about when your symptoms that you now know to be your Lyme disease symptoms began to present and interfere with your uh, life's journey.
2: So I, it was around, I think 2015, 2016. Um, so I had not yet joined the Global Lyme Alliance at the, that time. And um, so the, my symptoms were really um, weird and, in you know, and and now I I understand what what people, you know, why it so, takes so long for people to get diagnosed because, you know, mine started really the most critical symptom was um, with my vision and I had light sensitivity and, you know, it was, you know, bouncing from one eye to the next and, you know, series of eye doctor's appointments and then it would calm down Um, And then the other symptoms that I had that I didn't realize were symptoms were, you know, fatigue and, um, you know, my sleep pattern was disrupted. But, you know, you associate those things with your life, with just life issues. Um, But but the the eye problem was really the most significant thing that kept surfacing. And so my ophthalmologist um, at some point, um, decided to have me tested for a series of autoimmune conditions, that you, you know, MS, lupus, because the symptoms that I was having, as many kind of mimicked some of those conditions. He also did test me for Lyme disease, so to his credit, you know, he had a Lyme panel in there as, along with other things, but at that time, um, I only had two or three bands, and I can't remember the bands, So he automatically dismissed Lyme disease. And I, uh, you know, obviously I turned up negative for all the other conditions. And so it was the mystery that came and went, but, you know, certainly the fatigue and um, some of the other, you know, common day-to-day symptoms started to increase, but, you know, I attributed that to stress and job and all these, other things as, as people do. So it really took uh, about two years and actually it took me um, coming and starting to work for Global Lyme Alliance, totally not related to my personal situation at all. It was just um, an opportunity that presented itself to me. And as I started learning more about, more about Lyme disease, I started recognizing myself and so a part of me thought hypochondriac but then you know it got to a point and and really like the brain fog and the fatigue really started to take its toll on me and I was meeting with my boss one day and just totally blanking on things that I'm my words and, and losing track of thought and he, and he was like Are you sure you don't have Lyme disease? And that was the trigger to say to me, maybe I need to get tested. And so I did because always in the back of my mind I wondered. So what does this two, you know, two band, three bands mean? Like why is that even a thing? Like if I didn't have something, it shouldn't even um, be there. And and so sure enough, um, I tested positive. Western blot, Eliza
0: positive for Lyme disease. So it, I had it for at least two years that I know of. So Sarah, let's, <laughs> let's walk back to uh, the early parts of your diagnostic journey. So you were you were exhibiting the symptoms that you outlined for us, which was the you had these vision issues and you had your issues relating to to your your fatigue, and you go to a series of doctors, and mm-hmm. one of the doctors thankfully did test you and you tested, uh, did test you for Lyme disease and you did test positive, uh, uh, not CDC positive, but you did have Lyme band indicating Mm -hmm. Lyme. Now, why do you think the doctor didn't say to you, Hey, Sarah, Lyme disease tests suck, or "They, they aren't as good as they should be. And perhaps you should follow up with a specialist to see whether or not you have clinical symptoms that would require you or encourage you to treat for Lyme rather than just say, you're a mystery.
2: Yeah, lack of information. And then I I also think that physicians, definitely there's lack of information, lack of education around Lyme disease. We know um, in in medical school physicians, from what I understand, they get a, a chapter or a few pages in their education about Lyme. So definitely, I, I think there's lack of information, um, lack of um, you know published research and, and work that goes into it. And I think a lot of doctors and even my primary care physician, when I, I did go to him and we, and I don't know why it is that Lyme is not on top of mine, but we had a full blown discussion about Lyme disease because I was letting him know I'm working for global Lyme Alliance now and we had a whole conversation around Lyme and you know, when it came down to the time where he was going to um, you know put set up my work up you know my labs, it was everything else and I had to ask him to please throw the Lyme disease <laughs> into the into it. And so even though it was a conversation we had, so it should be fresh in his mind, right? It wasn't something he thought, let me test her for. And so, um, and you know, and when the test did come back positive, you know, he's like, well, you know, I can, you know, obviously he's going to give me the antibiotics, but certainly didn't want to entertain the fact of treating me on a long-term basis. And I think it's just because they're just, you know, lack of information, there is some degree of, I don't wanna to touch this illness because, you know, the, the history around it and, you know, physicians who, you know, did you know try to treat Lyme disease on a long-term basis who had licenses revoked or payments. So there's just a lot um, where, you, you know, maybe, I, I guess physicians just don't even wanna open that door.
0: So Sarah, let's talk about what the two-year window of your life was like between the time that you did have a test that indicated at least some bands for Lyme, and then your final diagnosis two years later. What was your life like as you're going through this journey of illness without a diagnosis? What impact did that have on you emotionally, other than what you've already described, which is you were wondering whether or not you were a hypochondriac?
2: (laughs) Yeah. No. I mean, I. You know, the thing that stands, the, the few things that stand out to me the most are really, you know, um, lack of motivation. You know, the the high. You know, the fatigue that was just horrible. Where you just sometimes I felt like I was like a walking dead person. Like you're just so exhausted, but you can't sleep. Um, and you know, mood swings that I didn't realize. You know. I, I didn't realize where I I thought like I was just some kind of just a mess. Like, I don't know either what I was going through, changing, you know, was it menopause? I don't know, you know, but there were just so many elements that were out of character, out of nature. Um, You know, I went from someone that went to the gym seven days a week to hardly ever. I just didn't have the drive and it just nothing felt right. But I really and truly thought it was me mentally, more more than a physical illness that I had.
0: Now, what impact did these developing symptoms have on you socially? Meaning, were there people in your life who you were disappointing or were suggesting to you that you were disappointing? And how were they reacting to your um, inability to be the person you had been before?
2: So there were people in my life that thought I was just being a Difficult, um, and um, just like I was, like I became this bad guy person. Um, that it, it just you know communication was was became challenging with certain people that were close to my life, and because I you know absolutely I didn't have the level of patience that I would normally have. Um, but I I just didn't I wasn't myself and. Unfortunately, the people that were around me didn't, um, you know, they more took it personally, I guess, or, you know, they weren't supportive. They were the opposite. So it didn't help.
0: What what impact did this developing set of symptoms have on you professionally, meaning were there impacts negative impacts on your career as a result of these symptoms that you were developing
2: well, professionally i think um you know fortunately i you know i was working at global lyme alliance and so they certainly had understanding to me because you know so that that was definitely a, the, the blessing of it all where i you know working with a group of people who understood what Lyme disease is, and, you know, may, you know, were helpful in saying, okay, you know, if you're not feeling, you know, you can work from home, and giving me options, and so, you know, thankfully, I, I was at that type of advantage. Personally, I struggled because I felt as if, because um, I wasn't, you know, as sharp a thinker or coming up with um, ideas in the way that I I know I used to, that was very um, frustrating for me, you know, personally.
0: So Sarah, talk about these diagnostic challenges that um, you're observing, not just in your own experience, but in the experience that other people at the Global Lyme Alliance um, are are seeing. Uh, One of the things that we've seen in our podcast is in so many cases, people are diagnosed by a friend, by someone else who has Lyme disease, by using Google and putting their symptoms into Google, rather than by their doctor, which is what happened in your experience. So talk to us about how that made you feel about the medical profession generally. And why do you think so many people are being diagnosed first by a friend or by a loved one doing research or some other source that is not a medical professional?
2: So it's, you know, so the, the Lyme community, you know, I it's, it's very interesting. Um, as I started working for Global Lyme Alliance and, and telling friends or, um, you know, acquaintances, people that I met, you know, where I was working, it was very interesting to see how many people, even people that I knew for years that were impacted by Lyme disease, that had Lyme disease. And so you know, it's it's something where I think if you have a friend that says, you know, oh, I've been, you know, um, I've been having fatigue, and you know, the 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 common symptoms, you know, you're you're probably talking to someone that potentially has experience already, and they're so hypersensitive to this that they'll say, you know, have you checked for Lyme disease? I've done it myself many, many times with people, you know, you should check for Lyme disease. You should tell your friend to check for Lyme disease or your family member first, because we know that, you know, unfortunately, the majority, I won't say all, but the majority of the medical community, they're not necessarily um, looking and diagnosing for Lyme disease first. It's and, and it's, it's in the patient's hands to actually go and say, I wanna be tested for Lyme and co-infections. And so that's, you know, basically, um, I think we all kind of um, think about Lyme disease first because we understand what it is and we know how complex and, and how much it can really turn somebody's life upside down if not diagnosed
0: early. So Sarah, now let's talk about the diagnosis. You finally get diagnosed with Lyme disease.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: How did you feel personally after getting the diagnosis, knowing that you had two years where you were not physically the person you had been before, you stopped going to the gym and having the kind of energy that you needed. You had now had all kinds of challenges with people that you were intimate with who thought you were being difficult and thought you were being um, you know, unreasonable, I guess. Um, you had questions about your own health, about whether or not you were, you were dealing with menopause and or other issues. And then, of course, you were having professional challenges, some of which were limited because you were, you were working at the Global Lyme Alliance, but you still had um, professional pro- challenges. How did you feel when you finally got your diagnosis, knowing all those things may have been avoidable had you been properly diagnosed two years before? So I felt
2: relieved, like, okay. I, th- there is something there, but then I felt like, uh-oh, now what? Because now, because I know, you know, the challenges that people face with treatment. So that's now, you know, great. We can check the box. I know what's happening with me. Thankfully, it was only Lyme disease and not cold infections. So, um, So that's one good thing. Um, but now it's like there's this you know, whole sea of potential protocols and a and whole level of confusion. What do you do next? You do, we know, antibiotics, or at least I did antibiotics first. Um, but when you get to the end of that road, because I, I certainly didn't intend to be, for me personally, on antibiotics for years, Um, what do you do next?
0: So, Sarah, let's talk a little bit more about how you felt now that you have your diagnosis. Were you able to now communicate with people in your social circle who you were having difficulties with during this two-year window and explain to them what was going on so that you can maybe heal some of the challenges that that, uh, were the result of that two-year window where you were not yourself?
2: Um, I communicated it. I I don't think that it made much of a difference to, to some people because, um, you know, I you know I I have, you know, some friends who totally, as much as I tried to educate them up until today about, you know, chronic Lyme disease, poach treatment, Lyme disease symptoms they're stuck in in their thoughts about Lyme, and so um, you know I I, I I you know there's only so much information you can provide and in my very personal um circle you know that relationship kind of it didn't mend itself with the fact that um you know i had a diagnosis and, and you know the complications around it so you know, I was still labeled the jerk, but at the end of the day, that person was the jerk, not me. So, um, and and I feel fine saying that because I I know that, um, you know, the various challenges that I experienced and went through just um, that I couldn't control, I had no control over, really, um, is what it is. And so that's what people just, I think people sometimes need to, be able to look at themselves before they start always um, making the person the other person be the
0: total um, bad guy in a situation. So, Sarah, before I turn you over to Matt, who I know is chomping at the bit to ask you the treatment questions, I, I do want to focus on one more issue that you had raised, um, and that is you said, thankfully, you only had tested for Lyme and not co-infections. And one of the things that I, I want to explore with you is we know that testing is is not great to begin with. And we know that there are very limited tests for the co-infections as well. So were you concerned that although you didn't test positive for other co-infections, there is the possibility that you are in fact suffering from other co-infections that were not identified with the testing. And are you doing anything to try to heal your body generally so that you can deal with the co-infections that you probably have that were not testable? Well, I feel
2: somewhat comfortable Like 95% comfortable, confident that I don't have co-infections as I, you know, my primary care did initial testing and I treated, um, and then I did go to a Lyme um, specialist probably six months in and was retested again for co-infections and Lyme. And we did a pretty extensive questionnaire. And so she didn't think that I had cull infections. And from what I, I know and what I see, I, I, I feel pretty comfortable that I don't because I, I see that in in my um est- you know, est- estimation that it's the people who have Lyme and the, the cull infections that struggle the most and um and are you know most sick at or are, are harder to treat. I don't want to say most sickest, but um, you know, they're, they're, there's way more complications associated when you have more than one tick-borne illness.
1: So Sarah, talk to us about now when you got your diagnosis and you started to treat, you mentioned you started off with antibiotics. How long were you on your antibiotics for? I
2: did about almost four months of antibiotics. And then Um, when I saw the Lyme specialist, you know, we decided to take a break to give my body a break from it. And then, um, you know, we would figure out, you know, other treatment plan for me. And, um, I did try other protocols along the way that I didn't necessarily, um, I just felt worse when I did them. And, and I think I'm, you know, I'm guilty, like maybe a lot of other people that you, you start to feel sicker, you just back off of a protocol, um, which is what I did. And so, um, you know, it's probably not the best thing that I, I could have done, but I, I did decide that I was going to try to just, you know, take, um, do lifestyle changes, dietary for example, um, you know, take a holistic approach. Uh, and, you know, one of the approaches that I did do was acupuncture, and that helped me tremendously. Not so, saying it will help everyone, but it helped me.
1: Sarah, when you say that you were on four months of, of doxycycline, was that prescribed by your primary care physician? Or was this now a lyme or doctor who gave you the four months of doxy?
2: Well, what happened was <laughs> I... My primary care prescription intended for me to be on 21 days of Doxy. But every time I did the, the script came up, I called for a refill and fortunately, or at any rate, the, you know when the pharmacy called the office, the, his office renewed. And so it was because I kept asking for a refill because I knew you needed to be based on what I understood and learned on antibiotics for a period of time. When my doctor realized what was going on, he he put a stop to my prescription renewals. So um, he didn't feel, and he was not comfortable with the fact that I was on antibiotics for as long as I was. But then um, my Lyme specialist thought that that didn't, She disagreed and thought that that was about right, but then you can only do for so long and you needed to give your body a break and rebuild the probiotics and that sort of thing. And I was taking probiotics that whole time, Um, but she wanted to just give me, do a breather and do a reassessment and then figure out where to go. Unfortunately for me, my prime, that L, my line specialist who I chose because they worked um, in a hospital system and they took insurance and that was that was the driver for me to select that individual. They took insurance, um, and she had personal issues and unfortunately um, was on on. Um, hiatus and never, you know, eventually did not come back. So I was constantly waiting for that person to come back to say, okay, in the meantime, I will, you know, do other things. And um, so there, you know, I will say, you know, financial concerns were a part of my treatment decisions.
1: Sarah, when you were treating with your Lyme litter doctor and she extended the antibiotics that your primary care would not, was your insurance covering that extended antibiotic treatment or were you paying out of pocket for those antibiotics?
2: No, my insurance did cover it,
1: thankfully. And you mentioned while you were on those four months of antibiotics initially that you did some other things as well. You mentioned probiotics. Was there anything else you were taking to supplement the antibiotics while you were treating for those first four months?
2: I started to do, well, anti inflammatory So supplements like, um, you know, c- c- turmeric, um, the probiotics for sure. Um, those were the, the, you know, the main, the two main things that I had started doing on a, you know, regular basis, um, doing antibiotics.
1: And Sarah, talk to us about how you felt on the antibiotics, because you mentioned that you weren't feeling great and you pulled back because of that. And you understand that could have been maybe just herxing and your body, you know, responding to the kill off of the bacteria. Were you, pretty much for the most part feeling worse throughout this four month period? Or was there was it an up and down journey over the four months?
2: It was up and down. I mean, I, I certainly, I, I saw some improvement. I did see improvement in terms of, you know, the fatigue and, and that sort of thing towards the end of it. Um, did I feel 100% me? No, I didn't. But um, I, felt, I felt better than I did you know, prior to, to treatment. So, you know, to me, that was good.
1: So, What else aside from your fatigue, did this help with? You mentioned that you had some headaches and neck and shoulder pain and, and things like that and other symptoms. Did the doxycycline help with any of those other symptoms or just primarily your fatigue?
2: Well, the, um, the fatigue, I, I mean, I still continue to have it, but the, you know, the neck and the shoulder pain, yeah, that definitely did help. I guess, or could it be that I took anti-inflammatories, you know, and, and that's where, you know, we start to create these gray areas because we we're taking and doing so many things at the same time. We don't know where to point our finger as what's actually helping. But um, I think overall, I mean, as a foundation for, uh, you know, treating and, and killing the, the bacteria, the antibiotics played a role.
1: Sure. And you met, you did mention that you were on the turmeric and the probiotics with the antibiotics. Were there any other anti-inflammatory supplements or prescription medications that you were on at this time?
2: Not during the antibiotic phase, no. After.
1: And when you finished the antibiotics, you mentioned that your doctor sort of stepped down for a little bit who was covered by insurance. And that's when you sort of went on to these lifestyle changes and diet and holistic approaches. So talk to us about what you did on your own while you were waiting, hoping that your doctor would come back and practice again and what those protocols are like for you.
2: Yeah. So I won't name the protocols, but I, I did try um, a few of the, the, the protocols that are um, positioned as Lyme treatments. And so You know, I, I, you know, as a part of my job, I went to, let's say, like the ILADS conferences every year prior to COVID. And so when you go to ILADS conferences, there are many people there that, um, so they have kind of like a... uh, vendor section for lack of a better word and there's there are many people and there with their supplements and their protocols and so it's very confusing and you know and, and that comes back to there's you know lack of standard of care in Lyme. Um, so I, I I did you know um, invest in some of these protocols for myself personally. I, I didn't I I found them challenging to con to to maintain and keep up with and they didn't help me to feel well. Um, I did end up you know turning to a, a I'm sorry acupuncturist and I did get a lot of um, benefit there but also I started getting supplements from him and you know it, it then it started out okay and then it started out then my whole now my whole cabinet is full of things and I you know I guess I will say maybe I'm not disciplined enough to take you know these massive protocols of, you know I'd be walking around with bags of pills all day if, and, and I, I just you know for me I it, it, it didn't work out like I, I made very simple things in my life <laughs> and the protocols would be, you know, treatment supplements. I just need basic stuff.
1: And Sarah, understanding that you don't want to talk about the specific protocols that you used, we're gathering that you use some herbal protocols, but for you and your the way you are to take these massive amounts of supplements wasn't practical for you in your situation, but were there any other things you would try that you can talk to us about at a high level to give others some sort of insight as to what helped you? Did you explore anything like maybe some energy healing or frequency healing like the amp coil or, um, and again, without saying these specific brands or any other alternatives that you could speak to at a high level and give our, our listeners some feedback about your experience with. Yeah. I mean,
2: really, and truly the, 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 the thing, the, the, one and only thing that I did turn to, I did acupuncture for a year, and um, I, I took some supplements along um, with that. The acupuncture helped me tremendously with sleep and the fatigue. And you know, quite honestly, I stopped. I did it for a little over a year, and I, I stopped doing it financial reasons. Um, but then also I wanted to see, like, I wanted to just see, like, if I stop doing this, you know, is it really the acupuncture or am I just better? Like, you know, um, so if I stop doing it, will I continue to feel, you know, better and, and sleep well and all these things or not? So that was my own little personal study that it turns out that really the acupuncture did help. And it's something that I'm considering, Um restarting again actually.
1: So you did actually feel worse after stopping your acupuncture?
2: Yeah, I started I felt bad. Like so my right now I would say in my um case my lime case, the biggest the, the most the major problems that I experienced that trouble me the most is sleep and fatigue. And um and you know, to some degree, the, the brain fog and the loss of words, which I can probably say it's because I don't sleep, but I don't know. Uh, and so, I think that going back and doing um, because it did truly help, and and I I feel like it wasn't placebo. That was part of my thing where I was like, well, you know, am I? So anyway, I I that I think really did help me.
1: Sarah, from a risk versus reward standpoint, we always like to evaluate things based on the potential reward and the potential risk. Did you experience any potential side effects or risks with acupuncture that you want to speak about? Or is this something that is a low-risk therapy that could be used to evaluate for other people to see if it helps them in their Lyme journey as well?
2: Well, I'm no medical doctor, but personally, I will say... um, if there are risks to it, to me, the benefit outweighed the risk. And I hadn't, I mean, just, you know, I've done um, acupuncture over the years for other things, pre Lyme disease for injuries and things like that. And and I've always had success with it. And so I'm a true believer in it personally. Um, I, thought let me give it a shot for the Lyme disease because I have had success in it with it in the past and I, and I felt like it helped me but you know that again it's it's a investment in yourself because at least here or the insurance that I have it doesn't cover uh, acupuncture so these are you know all out of pocket experiences and so for me I have to lay out okay if I'm going to spend X amount of dollars a month. What's the where do I think my best options are? And I felt like that would have that was my um, better
1: choice. And Sarah, in your healing journey, sounds like the antibiotics were your step one that really took the first major punch at combating Lyme disease. And then number two, you found acupuncture, which helped you sleep and helped you with your fatigue. And we know when you can actually sleep well, your body heals the most when you're sleeping. So that that obviously had a very positive impact on your healing journey. And you also mentioned that you did some other diet and holistic changes as well. So can you talk to us about the diet and maybe other holistic changes you made and how they helped in your healing journey?
2: Yep. And so I had already been dairy free um, because I, I'm lactose intolerant um, and I've attempted to be gluten free you know, over the years for um, other reasons, because I have um, eczema and things like that. So I had somewhat of an anti-inflammatory approach to eating prior to Lyme, but I, I really got serious about it when I had Lyme disease and, you know, definitely cut out the gluten and was, you know, definitely more diligent about, you know, knowing what products had gluten and didn't, Um, then also, you know, sugar to, you know, try to have eliminate sugar as much as I could. Um, And that still remains a little bit of a challenge for me um, as well. And just really cleaning up my diet. But then also, I found I had to really push myself to exercise and that in itself was troubling because I never had to push myself to exercise. That was something I woke up at the crack of dawn and I was at the gym at 5am every day. Um, I, I had to put a, make a conscious effort now, um, and still to, you know, try to move because honestly, you know, I can wake up feeling just like horrible ache and pain, you know, all kinds of things. But if I just, went outside and walked for however around the block whatever it may be i it did help me a, it helped a lot it really did mentally and physically
1: there and are so many people are at different stages of their lyme journey as you know it is some people are are bed bed bound by this disease so for those that are listening to this and saying oh i wish i could exercise can you speak to yeah there are some things and we have some followers like nick terensky who who is now no longer bed bound and gets out, but he, even when he was bed bound, would do certain, you know, movements and and just stretches to help get the blood flowing, to help his healing and help his mental health. So can you speak to that, that you don't have to be in a position where you can walk a mile around the block, even if you're extremely limited, you can still use exercise to help your body get your blood flowing and have a better attitude and what that will look like from your standpoint. Yeah, I mean, I
2: think, you know, just doing basic stretching, um, the other, you know, basic yoga type moves. I think it's just moving however way you can, whatever your capability is, because, you know, if we set goals and I spoke to someone, um, a lot, someone who has Lyme and and was wheelchair bound for quite a long time and and is doing so much better and thriving now. Um, and, and she said, you know, part of what helped her was setting goals. And so you set a different goal each day, you know, okay, today I'm just going to stretch upper body, for example. Um, and then you're able to accomplish that. Then, you you know, you set another goal and, and, and another goal. But, you know, within whatever your capabilities are, because that's, that varies with person to person.
1: And Sarah, it could be as simple as, like, I've been for the past several months now, every day before I go to work, I do a combination of five different stretches and and physical therapy routines that I've learned from various chiropractors and physical therapists that can take no longer than five to 10 minutes on a daily basis that for me really helped reduce my overall body pain and also helped me sort of be more, more positive and just help. I feel, I feel more blood flowing and, and actually decrease my brain fog. So it could be something as simple as that. Right.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: You also mentioned Sarah, that you when you're on the antibiotics that you just took the turmeric and the probiotics, but afterwards there were some other things you had done, both from, I guess, a supplement standpoint and a pharmaceutical standpoint from an anti-inflammatory perspective. Can you talk to us about what you did beyond the turmeric from an anti-inflammatory perspective? Um, so
2: I took supplements. I took, um, I'm probably going to mess this up because I can never say the word right. I, I Timosin. Help me, and help me with the, uh, that word, um, you know, glutathione, glutamine, you know, the B vitamins for sure. So, you know, I took um, Bs, Cs, Ds, so general, you know, vitamins to build my immune system up. Um, the Bs were helpful because that's, uh, you know, randomly I would get like uh, neuropathy. And I, I, sometimes I still do it. You know, I wake up with one hand that's totally, Um, off. And so, you know, vitamin D. So I think the essential vitamins and essential oils that I also do um, is really helpful. And and I think it's not, you know, again, I think that those are um, things that we should all probably be incorporating into our our daily uh, supplement diet.
1: So, so in addition to a combination of some herbs and, and vitamins, you also mentioned essential oils. Can you talk to us a little bit more, Sarah, in detail about how you use essential oils?
2: I use um, lavender quite a bit, you know, for, uh, to assist in, in um, sleep. And um, I use some others in terms of just for, um, you know, energy and, and for uplift, uh, things like that. So, you know, I, I have a little um, aromatherapy thing in my room and I use eucalyptus and various oils for um, clarity. So you know, those that those those uh, add-ons really do help.
1: Can you give us any more specific, if you use any, what oils you use for different purposes? You mentioned lavender to help you sleep and sort of calm you down and eucalyptus to help you sort of focus and have mental clarity. Are there any other oils you use for, for specific purposes that you can recommend to the lawn community?
2: Um, so I use those. Um, those are, I think, the ones that I, I use the most. Um, and then there are, are other blends that I, I um, do use, but, I, you know, I don't want <laughs> Necessary promote companies that, um, but I think you know those two I, are any that anyone can get, and then peppermint is also helpful as well.
1: So Sarah, is there anything else you did beyond what we discussed in your healing journey? I mean, you, clearly it was your antibiotics were your your you know your first major accomplishment. Then your mm-hmm. acupuncture was really your second major accomplishment. And then you sort of learned a combination of herbs and vitamins and essential oils to help you from an inflammatory standpoint and from a mood and a, and a clarity and a focus standpoint. Has there any, is there anything else we missed that you've used in your healing journey to get to where you are today? Um,
2: well, and, and then water. So, you know, I'm, 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 I I'm really make it a point to do pH balanced Water, so that I've that's been a major change in my, um, you know, intake also from just doing your general spring waters to making sure that I'm doing pH waters now. Um, I use a lot of, you know, ginger. I buy my own ginger roots from, you know, uh, BJs, and I, you know, make ginger a big batch of ginger tea. I use it in the blender and I do ginger shots and and turmeric also. So that I I do myself by just buying the roots at the store. And um, I think those things are, are helpful also.
1: I actually do both of those things as well. And I think we can say that turmeric for sure helps with inflammatory problems and the ginger helps with your gut and digestion as well, which many people with Lyme have issues with. Mm-hmm. but can you Sarah can you talk to us more about the water because I, I, for those that are listening can you explain why pH balanced water is so important compared to regular tap water for example to drink?
2: So um, the, I mean we want to make sure that the, the our pH in our system is is at a certain level I think that and I can't get into the science behind it. To be quite honest with you, it's like I've been doing it for so long. Like it's one of those things. Like you're, you know, you're doing it, and it's healthy. But you've kind of forgot the details behind it. But you know, we need our, our the pH in our body needs to be at, at balance. And I think there's some degree of imbalance when you have um, conditions like Lyme. Um, it, it's it, overall, it's it's more beneficial, I think, for anyone to, to use not endorsing it, but, um, and, I, and I, I, see it all the time, you know, people who are singers and athletes and that sort of thing that are, you know, using it for hydrate to better hydrate your body.
1: So Sarah, one question before I hand it back to Richard, which I really don't want to do, but I know we're coming close on time here. I could go on, on with you forever, but, clearly you've learned a lot. You've made a lot of progress. You're here on this podcast. You've been talking to us for quite a while now, even before this episode started, but give us an assessment of how your health has improved and what, how you're feeling today compared to where you were at your worst.
2: I mean, um, I feel, I have, I, I'll say this in, in all honesty. I don't feel, um, certainly I don't feel like the person I felt prior to um, Lyme disease. But, you know, certainly from when I was in the throes of it and, and trying to figure it all out, you know, I do feel better. So maybe I'm 75% better. And, and for me, I think that's good because I, I talked, it's not, you know, it's I have a, I have a goal of getting to 100% better. For right now, I can manage myself. I can show up for work. I can, you know, do the things and, and um meet my obligations in life, um, I would love to, to feel 100% better. But when I compare myself to the many people that I speak to in the Lyme community on a daily basis, I feel like I'm doing okay because there are so many more that are afflicted with Lyme and co-infections that, you know, as you mentioned, you know, they struggle to get out of of bed and so I'm so thankful that um that's not me. I mean there are days where I do struggle but I can I can get out of bed. You know I might be moving slow that day but I can get something done maybe not everything but something. So I you know I'm very grateful for you know where I've gotten to there's still a little bit of a road ahead but um
0: you know, I'm not complaining. So sorry, we talked about your transformation really at the beginning of this podcast, where you went through this life's journey that brought you to the Global Lyme Alliance. So talk to us about how your experience with Lyme has been transformational and what has been beautiful about this experience. um, And you would not give back if you had to do it again. Well,
2: I mean, it's, you know, the transformation is, it just, it feels like, um, you know, I'm in a place where now, you know, I am, ex- I've experienced living with this condition. I, it gives me, um, it really showed, gives me new purpose in terms of like how I can better speak to a condition that I'm working in. Um, I, you know, I didn't at the time, as I mentioned earlier, when I came to Global Lyme Alliance, had no idea that I was living and walking around with Lyme disease. Like I also, I too had it and I had no idea. Um, It really helps me understand, you know, how to better, you know, the type of help and the type of support that people need that are, are living with this. And, you know, I, I feel like the, this is like a silent epidemic. So many of us are, are walking um, around and, and having, you know, some have some know and some don't know that we have Lyme disease. And, um, you know, it, it really, to me, is very important. And now, you know, one other part of this is, especially it's important for me to um, show, the other faces of Lyme disease because you know I you know I'm, I don't fit I guess the, the what what the um, world may think is a person who has Lyme disease and so it impacts all of us all ethnicities and you know and, and, and this is why I felt like it was important to share this story with you to show the other face of Lyme and um, you know, how, how we are all living and
0: struggling with it together. So do you get the sense that you've always been getting ready for the position that you now have a kid who is born and bred and educated in Connecticut, the, you know, the birthplace of Lyme disease, someone who has always been articulate and trained to, um, to educate people, both from your, uh, your education as a journalist and then as a marketing professional and then you find yourself ill and not even knowing what your illness is and you now arrive at the global lime alliance where you can empathize with the folks that gla is um is purposed with with helping but even more importantly bringing your very particular set of skills and experiences and gifts to this unique position yeah i
2: definitely I, i i think so i mean you know, as I, I look back at you know just you know how I live my life and and you know the responsibilities in my life, certainly it's always been a role of um, being supportive, being empathetic, and helping you know guide, provide guidance you know in one way or another. And so you know I, you know I'm thankful for the road that led me here, um, because I did learn a lot along the way that I think I can certainly um, apply here to be to, to help, you know, um, patients, people who are living with it, but then also, you know, trying to help people who have no idea what Lyme disease is, and to better inform them and, and make them aware of um, the risks associated with it. because honestly, I don't know where I—I I never saw a tick. I, I'm not certain. I can narrow it down to one of a few places where I could have potentially gotten bitten by a tick. I'm not an outdoorsy person, um, and I feel like it could have happened in my mother's backyard. I was cleaning, you know, gardening and cleaning it up to do a birthday party for her, you know, that you know, then in you know, in Bridgeport, and so. I, I feel like yes it's it's definitely helpful and will help me in the work that I have in front
0: of me. So Sarah, let's talk about what makes you particularly unique and you just sort of reference that you don't look like the traditional person who is suffering from Lyme disease. Can you articulate what you mean by that in some more detail?
2: So I think so there there are a lot of misconceptions around Lyme disease, right you you know, Um, There's not a whole lot, it's not necessarily talked about a lot in the media and that sort of thing, but when it is, you know, and these, you know, certain celebrities or certain um, influencers or so come forth and they talk about their experience with Lyme disease, you know, there's, it's, I think there's a, a, a stereotype associated with who gets Lyme disease and, you know, I, you don't necessarily see, I don't see any people like me for the most part talking about Lyme disease, talking about prevention or, or having it. And I think, you know, there needs to always, there, in any case, broad representation is important because, you know, it needs, it, it, for whatever reason, people identify when they see someone like themselves. And so when you see someone that potentially contracted it in an urban area. Um, and, you know, I, you know I, I don't fit the celebrity profile. You know, you you, know, you can step, take a step back and say, okay, maybe this is something I need to pay attention to.
0: So Sarah, one of the things that we've faced or one of the, the critiques that we've faced is that most of the people that we've interviewed and profiled have been young, white, and female. And we've really struggled to try to bring diversity to our podcasts and bring diversity to our social media. We've also found when we've been asked by HHS, for example, to give names of people who they could interview as part of their analysis, they were looking for men in particular because they were having difficulties finding men. So why do you believe that the sort of face of Lyme seems to be a young white female, and it doesn't have the same diversity that we know Lyme is presenting as.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think this is a challenge in in health conditions across the board. And and this was, you know, we had the same challenge, you know, and I I worked in in oncology. Um, You know, some research will say, you know, women are more vocal about what they're you know going through a health condition or whatever so you know it comes down to, to gender and also there are some socioeconomic type factors that play a part in this you know and 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 this is you know papers not me saying this but you know it, it's not a it's not a challenge exclusive to Lyme disease unfortunately it's it's something where Um, there are so many other factors that do play a part in um, having these open conversations, being public. And I also was challenged with that, to be honest. And, you know, I mean, a lot of it too is cultural. You know, we, you know, some cultures are very, you know, they private you know you don't want to share what's going on oh my gosh this person has a sickness don't tell anybody for what I don't know for whatever reason but these these things are passed down culturally over time and you know, I had to make a a, even for this podcast I had to make a a personal decision to say you know it's 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 my responsibility to share and to inform people and let people know and I can't just you know, stand and hide behind, oh, it's my job, because this has personally affected me. And the first time that I actually, I I was forced to be public about it was, you know, and I was doing something for work um, at um, Senator Blumenthal and, uh, Kirby Stafford from State of Connecticut. You know they were doing a talk around ticks and the increase of ticks and that sort of thing a couple years ago in um, New Haven, Connecticut. And I was just there as a for GLA, but not supposed to say a word, not a peep. <laughs> um, but the, a news person wanted to interview someone who had Lyme disease, and I was kind of put on the spot. And for a minute, like. I felt like I wanted to say, no, I don't want Bridgeport knowing my business or whoever, but I realized, no, it's my responsibility to really share and talk about this. That's the only way that people are going to know. So, you know, I have to be a part of the solution.
0: Right, so we, we have to be responsible for ourselves, but we also have to be responsible for everyone else, right? And responsibility right. is certainly something that uh, is an important element of this, but I, I do want to explore this issue with you a little bit more um, because we you know, we have really struggled, quite frankly, locating the type of diversity we would like to locate in order to be able to present this, and, and you're raising a really important issue that we haven't explored before, which is um, there are cultural issues that, that get passed down, and in some cultures, uh, there has been betrayal from the medical community. And as a consequence of the betrayal from the medical community, there is a sort of cultural feeling or cultural sense that uh, that the medical community cannot be trusted. And you think that's playing a role in the diagnostic and treatment issues in, in some communities uh, with Lyme disease?
2: I think that's probably overall um, a, a, a huge challenge and, and role. I, I think, you know, for those for, for, you know, all of us who are in, and um, dealing with Lyme, you know, they're based on personal experiences where many of us do feel let down by our physicians and that sort of thing, because, you know, we're not believed and whatever. I mean, the stories are endless, you know, and I'm sure you've heard many of them. I, I hear them all the time. And so it's really disturbing. But when the information and, you know, which is part of my job, and, you know, we have a team of ambassadors, Lyme education ambassadors who, you know, they volunteer to get out into their communities and to raise awareness, prevention, education, but to get that information out into, you know, everywhere. Like, in you, earlier when we started this conversation, you asked me about, was I taught about ticks in school? And, and that sort of thing. And the answer was no. And this is where it needs to change. Um, you know, so this is not an, an education that's happening, you know, where you know, typically you would start with your kids and it trickles up to parents and that sort of thing. So there's a lot of educational gaps there. Um, we need to try to get beyond this stereotype of the rich, rich white female disease which I hate to say that but it's, it's what it is it, it, and it impacts people in the you know inner cities you know class. It, it doesn't matter takes are everywhere we're all at risk um, I just think that you know there are, I, I feel like there's a lot of um, cultural issues and as I mentioned before this is not exclu- exclusive to Lyme. and when I worked in myeloma that was our biggest challenge also being able to show
0: the various faces that, that, um, that myeloma impacted. So Sarah, as, um, as this wonderful guest and as, uh, as the, the giving person that you are and now, of course, as, as an educator as well, I'm going to ask you the final question we ask everyone. And that is, if God forbid, right after this podcast, someone that you love came walking into your room and showed you that they were being bitten by a tick. What would you recommend that they would do so they would not have to go on a terrible chronic Lyme disease journey?
2: So um, one, we would remove the tick, remove it, save it, and send it to a lab for testing and testing for Lyme and and other co-infections. You know, I would recommend that they go to their physician and ask for prophylactic treatment in advance, but you know, hopefully the physician will, will grant them that and, and give them the, the 21 day cycle as a preventative. Um, you know, if met with resistance, then, you know, you'd explain the, to get tested, it's definitely, I think it's a four week window that you have to wait. So going that route, but, you know, ideally it would be go to your physician, ask for antibiotics right away, not, let's not wait to see what would happen. And that would be my first
0: recommendation. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Sarah Tider. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Sarah Tider and her Lyme disease journey, please visit her at Global Lyme Alliance. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of this post. Third, we here at Tick Bootcamp have created a tick bite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been provided by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to visit and view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or improvements you would like to offer us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get you automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, please take a minute to leave us an honest review and rating on iTunes or on our website. As always, we thank you for your attention and for listening.